what we believe we believe. Why do I believe Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life? You want to be a Christian. You want to live the Christian life. But you've never learned how to live the Christian life. You are listening to Tellius Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. Today, we are on part two of our series on the sacraments. Today's topic is the sacrament of communion. Communion is riddled with controversy and misunderstanding. Do you practice foot washing, follow the teaching of transubstantiation, or does communion represent some type of holy cannibalism? Just like baptism, in communion there is no shortage of opinions. Join us today as we discuss the sacrament of communion. You are listening to Tellius Talk, and I am your host, Wendell Martins. This is our second episode of the sacraments, and today we're going to be talking about communion. So, like last month where we talked about baptism, this is a sacrament that's almost always celebrated in a church setting. And, like baptism, communion has its own set of controversies, traditions, and cultural reflections. Let us not forget that communion was instituted by Christ and has been practiced by the Christian church ever since. Jesus said at the Last Supper, Do this in remembrance of me. And it is this command that makes the participation in communion a sacrament. But before we get into this discussion, let's talk a little bit about how the church practices communion. So what are we talking about here? Depending on what church you attended, the sacrament of communion looks slightly different, and it is referred to in different terms. The use of the term communion, or holy communion, which refers to the Eucharistic rite, began by some groups originating in the Protestant Reformation. The term communion comes from the word koinonia, used in 1 Corinthians 10.16, which means sharing in common. So we read, Is the cup of blessing which we bless not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? So then, to boil the idea of communion down to its basic parts, it is a sharing of the blood of Christ and the body of Christ in the way taught by Christ himself. The term the Lord's Supper is the predominant term among evangelicals such as Baptists, at Pentecostals. They glean the term Lord's Supper from the Greek Kuriakos Dipnon, which is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 20-21. Therefore, when you come together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? This references an act of the early church which was instituted by Paul in the Corinthian church. It is safe to assume that the practice was widespread in other churches of the time as well. The term Eucharist or Eucharista, which means Thanksgiving, is that by which the rite is referred to in the Didache, a late 1st or early 2nd century document. It's also referred to this way by Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, and other early church fathers in the first two centuries. In the first apology written by Justin Martyr between 
155 and 157, he refers to it as the Eucharist. Today, the Eucharist is the name still used by the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, and Lutheran churches. But most notably, the term Eucharistia is from the phrase, had given thanks, and is found in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-24, which reads, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In this verse, Paul is referencing directly back to the Last Supper and to the words of Christ to his apostles. Let's talk about a few of the controversies which are tied to the sacrament of communion. So do we have transubstantiation or consubstantiation, or do we just have food? There seems to be a traditional desire to apply mysticism to the sacraments, and to do this cheapens their importance rather than enhancing them. In the sacrament of communion, we see this primarily in the teachings of transubstantiation and consubstantiation. Transubstantiation is a term and teaching used primarily in the Roman Catholic theology to describe how the bread and the wine are changed in substance into the actual flesh and blood of Christ. This happens during the celebration of Mass. The teaching of transubstantiation assumes that the words of Jesus in John 6, verses 53 to 54, and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 and 24 are indeed literal. This is sometimes referred to as the accident of substance transformation. Consubstantiation is a mystical orthodox teaching which the Church of England and the Lutheran Church teach as a concept of communion. However, some modern Lutheran theologians reject this term due to its ambiguity. Luther taught that during communion, the body and the blood of Christ and the bread and wine coexisted equal with each other. The doctrines of transubstantiation and consubstantiation have no basis in Scripture. There are traces of these teachings in some post-apostolic and reformational writings, but they are extra-biblical at best. The concept of transubstantiation has some early church roots in the writings of some early church fathers, including, as we already mentioned, Ignatius of Antioch, John Christosom, and Ambrose. And it was also vigorously defended in the early 9th century by the French monk and theologian Paschasius, Radbertus. The Fourth Lateran Council adopted transubstantiation as doctrine in 1215 AD, and it was formalized in 1545 AD at the Council of Trent in an attempt to discredit the Reformation, as we read in the Council of Trent's Canons, numbers 1 through 4. The doctrine was reaffirmed more recently at the Second Vatican Council in 1962 through 65. So we see how deeply entrenched this idea is in Catholic theology. Any time a teaching attempts to literally place the presence of Christ's flesh and blood into the communion components, it is because of a misunderstanding of Scripture and the language employed by the writers. Apologist and pastor Mike Winger makes this observation regarding transubstantiation, which can parlay over to the consubstantiation argument as well. We should view this 
in a first century Jewish perspective and not from the perspective of 15th century reformational or traditional Catholic theologies. The Passover meal already contained a ton of symbolic meaning and the apostles would have understood this. The Jews did not expect the angel of death to pass over them every year as had been done in Egypt. The practice was symbolic. In a conversation I had with my dad regarding communion, he echoed the same sentiment in the Old Testament, saying that the Passover was instituted then. This was so the angel of death would pass over the home with the blood on the doorposts and not kill the firstborn in that home. Moses instructed them to continue to practice Passover on a regular basis. This reenactment was not because the angel of death was returning, but that the Israelites would not forget that they would remember how God had brought them up out of the land of slavery, that they would remember the relationship with God and seek to strengthen it. Mike Winger continues, Jesus was giving new meaning to an established and understood tradition. He was establishing a new covenant in its place. So we need to remember that the act of communion is full of covenant language. Jesus instructed the disciples to celebrate communion with the breaking of bread often, in remembrance of me. Jesus said to the disciples, This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Remember me. Focus on me. Be reconciled to me. Renew your relationship with me. And do not forget to humble yourself. Remember what I have done for you. There is no doctrine in Judaism where the lamb offered becomes the literal flesh of the lamb of the Passover. There is no transubstantiation in the Jewish context. Symbolism is the context in which Jesus presents the act of communion. We could turn and look at how Jesus taught in parables and ask ourselves why. It is so that the secrets of God would be received by those whose hearts were in tune with him, lest the ones who thought they were so intelligent would also think they understood, and then corrupt the intent of God. He said, the kingdom of God belonged to ones such as these, and that is the children. What is it about children? Because they understand the mysteries of God in the most simple way. So why complicate it? It's Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's all about Jesus. To quote Mike Winger again, the eating of human flesh would have definitely gone against the teaching of Torah. And if we take this a little further, it would have been strange to have consumed the flesh before the sacrifice had been made. So I believe that this debate of transubstantiation in communion misses the point. Jesus said to the disciples, Beware the yeast of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would focus on the law rather than the intent of the law. The Pharisees would have created many new laws and gone off the mark. Remember again that Jesus said, Unless you become as little children, you will not inherit eternal life. And this brings us to our next point. What about the ordinances of communion? Are we restricted to the use of bread and wine only? Or are we free to use grape juice in the place of wine and leavened bread in the place of unleavened? It seems clear that Jesus used what was on hand when instituting communion, so the elements really do not make a difference be it wine or juice, leavened or unleavened bread, crackers or gluten-free products, the difference is the condition of our hearts. 
It is Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.28 who tells the people that when they come to the table and recall that someone is at odds with him, they go and set things right with their brother before proceeding. We are also instructed in Scripture that if we know that something that we do causes someone to stumble, it is better to refrain from that thing instead of making the weaker brother stumble. When my dad was pastoring a small church on the Canadian prairies, the practice at his church was to use grape juice and unleavened bread. One of the parishioners came to him and commented how much he appreciated that they used juice instead of wine. This man was an alcoholic, and although he felt that one small taste was fine, he said that in his mind he would say, I handled that sip, maybe I can handle another. He felt that one small drink could cause him to go back to his old ways, and that was something he did not want to do. For him, the fact that the church had decided not to use wine was a good thing and helped him to feel comfortable in the church not having to struggle with his addiction. When I was attending Bible school, our dorm decided we would create accountability groups to meet weekly. Each group consisted of three or four members, and we would read scripture, pray, and share communion every time we met. Being poor students, we would often bring crackers or some type of bread from the cafeteria, but on occasion a granola bar or cookie was substituted. Likewise, we would sometimes substitute orange crush or water into our communion meal. After a few months, the school did order us to cease these meetings because they felt that the act of communion should be led by someone who was ordained. The ordinances did not seem to be an issue. Let's talk about some of the radically odd misunderstandings related to the act of communion. There are accusations of cannibalism. And although this isn't something that we often hear, the charge of cannibalism is not new. The Romans often accused the early church Christians of being cannibals precisely because the disciples spoke of eating and drinking their God. As this represented criminal behavior, such an accusation would have labeled the Christians as a threat to society. In the second century, an apologist by the name of Athenagoras addressed the charge of cannibalism in his writings to the emperor Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus. It was entitled Embassy for the Christians. This accusation still comes up from time to time and we must know how to defend what we believe. As an Anabaptist, my understanding of communion being a symbolic act makes this accusation moot, since it is presented and argued on a general misunderstanding of Scripture. Sometimes we have disagreement about allowing people guilty of moral evil to partake. Recently, there was a news story regarding the Catholic Church refusing to allow an American politician to take part of communion because of her association to abortion in that country. Shortly after that incident, the Pope himself served the same politician communion during her visit to Rome. This isn't a new development in the Christian Church, as such things can be seen all throughout its 2,000-year history. Abortion, euthanasia, reassignment surgery, they all fall into the category of moral evil because they take what God created and either destroys it or mutilates it essentially perverting that which God meant for good. There is a very famous example of this, when Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, decided to deny communion to the emperor 
Theodosius in the 4th century. Enraged by the lynching of a leader of the Roman army garrison, Theodosius gave the orders that led to a massacre in the port city of Thessalonica, which killed 7,000 citizens. In a letter calling to Theodosius to take responsibility for his actions, Ambrose wrote, Are you ashamed, O emperor? Even if we are saved, but we have unconfessed sin in our life, we should not take part in the Lord's Supper. Unconfessed sin is often represented by those sins we try to justify. Therefore, our sin represents rebellion against God, and any participation in sacramental acts increases that guilt. Additionally, the lost or the unsaved are not invited to participate either. Interestingly, we read in the Didache, Do not let anyone eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the statement of the Lord applies here also, Do not give to dogs what is holy. And then we move to foot washing. Foot washing is often associated with communion as we observe Christ washing the feet of the disciples before the Last Supper in John thirteen fourteen, It reads, So if I, the Lord, and the teacher wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Referred to as Monday or Pedalavium, foot washing is seen as referring to the commandment of Christ that believers should emulate, his loving humility in the washing of the feet. This is why Monday, Tuesday is often a day where we practice both humility and foot washing. Humility because foot washing was a servant's role in the household. People walked the streets barefoot in their sandals, so it made sense that you would have your guests' feet washed when they entered your home. When Jesus took the disciples to the upper room for the Passover meal, there were no servants present. So Jesus took the role of a servant and proceeded to wash the feet of his disciples. This was an ultimate act of humility and service. The disciples had argued earlier who was the greatest, and now Jesus demonstrates that to be the greatest, you must be the servant of all. One needs to set aside their own agenda and position and be willing to put others ahead of themselves. The last question that I would like to answer is, are our sins forgiven through communion? Quite simply, no. Communion does not work as an institution to forgive sins. Remember that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as a sacrament of remembrance. Luke twenty-two nineteen records these words, Do this in remembrance of me. The closest we can get to the forgiveness of sins in the celebration of communion is what we have already discussed. You are encouraged to find reconciliation before proceeding with communion. If you remember that there is someone who is at odds with you, it is a time for soul-seeking. It is a time for seeking forgiveness with others. And do this before you come to the throne of God. In this way, forgiveness and reconciliation play an important role in the Christian church. So, what is the form of communion? The pre-Nicene church is known to have enjoyed an agape meal together. When the agape meal was over, the uninitiated would leave the room or at least step aside while communion was performed in their presence. Sometimes the Christians would retire to a different room at this time. The uninitiated did not partake in communion. Some churches have a common cup and bread, which each member comes to for the sacrament. 
Some churches have special platters with small glasses containing wine or juice, along with another platter for bread. And there are many other forms which combine prayers or foot washing. The form of communion is not holy. It is the function of communion that we call the sacrament. It is the obeying the command of our Lord, which compels us to celebrate corporately in remembrance of him. Let us pray. Father God, it is in remembrance of your sacrifice and the cost of our salvation that we celebrate the act of communion together. Bring us to the table in humility, obedient and reconciled. We ask for the forgiveness of our sins and thank you for the promise of salvation. Be with us throughout the week, protect us, and bring us back to the table once again. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At some point in the next year, I would like to continue this series on the sacraments. There is a lot more which could be discussed concerning how the Church implements them. If you haven't heard, our book, Six Good Questions, is now available on Amazon. This is a great book for small group study, and we are working on developing a leader's guide. Kelly's talk also just recently achieved 1,000 downloads. We would like to thank all of those of you who listen. Please share this podcast and let others know what we are doing. Next month, we will be talking about church attendance and discipline. I hope you join us then. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month, Telia's talk will address church attendance and discipline. What does discipline look like in a church setting? Does our attendance reflect our level of faith? Can you just worship in nature? Don't forget to visit our Facebook, Patreon, and YouTube pages. We are now on Twitter as well. Please check out at Tellius T and follow us there. Our book, Six Good Questions, is now available. Please look for it on Amazon. We are always happy to visit and answer questions. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. We look forward to sharing with you again. Do we believe what we believe we believe?